0: welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode we will be continuing on reading through Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism and what we'll be doing as what's always a good thing to do is have a very brief recap of our key concepts that we went over so far. Next, we'll be going into the next section then called the temporary alliance between the elite and the mob. And what exactly is this new section that we're dealing with talk about and discuss? So it's really going into look at this whole concept of the masses that Arendt so far talked about and then really going into the origins of this and exactly how did it come about. So for this then it's quite a bit of a task ahead of us because then we've got to look at exactly pre-World War I civilization and exactly what was life like pre-world war one and then going into world war one itself to look at life in the trenches and how exactly did that affect people's way that they thought and then rounding off also tackling the whole issue of what was life like after the trenches And how did this have an effect upon people's self-identity, how they viewed history, and as well as why people accepted the mass leaders, as she calls them, of history. Hitler and Stalin so it's quite a big task ahead of us and quite a lot of fun things to have a good discussion of them so before we get stuck into all that let's have first a discussion of our key concepts so first we're dealing with the key concept of the masses and what exactly is the masses is this indifferent politically neutral mass that is a collective of people who don't have any particular feeling about politics and don't have any thought about it whatsoever they're politically neutral they don't lean one way or the other for one party or the other however we've noticed that this is an incredibly key thing this big and politically indifferent mass Why is that the case? Because they're key for democracy and for people to vote for different parties during the whole election process, gaining on those people who are politically neutral, convincing them of your policies and your argument, and then you go off to vote for whichever party it is that they've been swayed by and ultimately what sound good to them. Then it's also key for gaining in new party members at the same time, for whichever political party it is, to have all these politically neutral people then be completely engaged with politics and actively seek out to support whichever party. So... We have that lovely concept of the masses, then that politically indifferent, neutral mass of people. Then we had the concept of an atomization of society. And what that was dealing with, for the largest part of it, was exactly how Stalin came in and made society in this atomized way as a says so exactly what does this mean "'It's for totalitarianism is a movement,' she says, "'of atomized, isolated individuals. "'This is for people's whole sense of the world "'is through belonging to a movement "'and membership to a party. "'Each member is demanded to have unconditional "'and unalterable loyalty. "'Each individual thinks and acts accordingly "'to how the government would act.' And what's such a good way to think about this that we drew out from the last episode as well is trying to have this concept of the hive mind in which everybody would think exactly the same and as we just said, think and act accordingly to how the government would act without having been told what to do. And so one of the key things that we got as well from last episode was this whole eradication, is a nice way of putting it, of the difference between thinking and acting or ruling and ruled, Because in the dictatorship, as she says, within Mussolini, you have very much that whole system in place you have someone in charge like Mussolini he gives an order and everybody else follows it when you come around to look at Stalin and Hitler this doesn't work in the same way why not because ultimately there is no difference between thinking and acting what does that mean that when somebody thinks they'll automatically act accordingly to exactly how the government would want them to act. And the example that we used from the last episode is when you have someone who is exposed in some way by the secret police and they're ultimately said to be guilty of something. Then everyone around them will also say that person is guilty not only that but also say I was spying on them the whole time as well and why of course do they do all this is to save their own lives and then incredibly the person who's guilty or suspect to have done wrong will help themselves in their own prosecution yes I have done wrong because you found me out to done wrong and therefore i must have done wrong and it goes back into those points we made of that unconditional unalterable loyalty and it's using that example is so good because we see it even in the case where somebody could be mistaken and in fact a person's not guilty whatsoever because of that level of fanaticism and that level of loyalty that they have Just the whole idea that he could be mistaken would be even wrong. Which is, of course, incredible as a mindset. So, we have then our two key concepts that we've had so far. The masses, as well as this atomization of society that's been going on. Next, what does Arendt do? As we said, she goes and takes a look at this whole concept of the masses and tries to work out exactly how did this come about. And so, as we said at the start, there's a little bit of legwork for us to do, but it's going to be all really interesting stuff. So let's get kicked into what exactly was society like before World War One and a nice way to explain it as well is that european society was in a monarchical system and let's just give some examples you had the german empire with wilhelm ii who reigned from 1888 to 1918 you have the austrian hungarian empire ruled by emperor franz joseph who reigned from 1848 to 1916 you have the ottoman empire who's ruled by Ottoman Sultan Mehmed V, who ruled from 1909 to 1918. As well as you have the Russian Empire, ruled by Tsar Nicholas II, who reigned from 1894 to 1917. And the last example for the monarchs is the UK, Great Britain, with King George V, 1910 to 1936. And, of course, we have to put a little side note in here. The exception to this rule is France, who's established the Third Republic in 1870, which lasted until July 10th, 1940, when France was defeated by Nazi Germany. And what's interesting as well, around that period of 1870, just before that, there was a the whole establishment of the monarchy again for the third time, and then they've just gotten rid of the monarch because of his defeat, and that was Emperor Napoleon III. So, really interesting for French history during that entire period, of course. So what can we say in a general way then? So not only do we have monarchs, but also there's that whole idea of a class system within society. That is to say, everyone is determined by who they were in society. And then we could just do the very broad sweep of that, which you have the monarchs and the nobility, then you have the clergy, then you have everybody else. And because everybody is determined by who they were in society, as Arendt says, you can't really move out of who you were unless it was just sheer luck or by marriage. And here you can see the sense if you just take it to your ordinary everyday person or average Joe. Let's say they were a farmer. Then ultimately you go back into that whole family tradition sort of aspect of jobs that... Your dad's a farmer, your grandfather's a farmer, and so forth. You'll just all go into that whole lineage of farming. And what would marriage look like? You'd essentially have an arranged marriage in which you have two families coming together for the benefit of their own economic situation. So they have more land to work with, and so ultimately it's going to work out for everybody in the best run through that whole marriage. And it's interesting as well when you look at marriage, how the idea of romantic love, that is to say one in which you are in control of who you marry, is an incredibly recent concept as well. So we have all this within society in itself we have those three tiers of monarchy and nobility clergy than everybody else so iran discusses the overall elite and intellectual climate then of pre-world war one to world war two this whole period in time and when she discusses the elite she refers to people who are held in high regard by society such as artists academics and writers and what she says is that there's a growing dissatisfaction and disgust for all existing standards of society and there was incredibly great enthusiasm for the outbreak of world war one and she says many thanked god when mobilization occurred in 1914 and i could think here there's a great example that pops into mind from high school in which my history teacher also told me this in which people got incredibly excited at the thought of world war one when it initially started because he said people loved the thought is horrible as this sounds of having a great time for a couple of weeks killing some people and then coming back home which in itself is mind-blowing as an idea especially now when we consider the absolute horrors of war that in itself people were excited by the whole prospect of killing other people building on that then we have some great examples for this whole dissatisfaction with culture. And Arendt discusses the example of Thomas Mann, in which Thomas Mann wrote a book called Reflections of a Non-Political Man, which was published October 1918, so just a month before actually World War I ended. And this was to highlight this dissatisfaction of Western culture, as well as the enthusiasm with the outbreak of war and this is from a lovely article by Jürgen Pelzer, which is from the website 1914 to 1918 online the internet encyclopedia of the first world war as Jürgen says here Thomas Mann praised the war as a purifying and necessary experience and by claiming that the German position was the reflection and defense of a higher culture. According to Mann, the Germans had to defend themselves against a shallow Western civilization which stood for reason, enlightenment, moderation, moralization, skepticism, dissolution and mind as well as affluence and acquiescence whilst german cultural values were highly concerned with a certain organization of the world war is thus celebrated by man is a highly welcome departure from the lures of civilizational affluence a return to mystical life values and a preservation of national characteristics and as he says continuing on here the scope of the reflections is even broader while continuing to follow the same ideological goals Thomas Mann emphasizes the special geographical situation held by Germany, which did not share Western values, the tradition of Protestantism with its religious and political connotations, and finally, German cultural traditions, especially in music and philosophy, for example, Arthur Schopenhauer, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Richard Wagner. As a spiritual people, Mann considered Germans to be apolitical or even anti-political, which is also how he self-identified. According to Mann, this made Germans conservative proponents of monarchy, which Mann argued included many freedoms in its modern form. And so here we have such a great example that Arendt Highlights here, and what we can get out of all of this and touch upon the key points is this whole dissatisfaction that man highlights here with Western civilization and defending yourselves against this shallow Western civilization. Which all these concepts are not bad things in and of themselves reason, enlightenment, moderation, moralization, skepticism dissolution the mind all these things are really great ideas in of themselves but here you can see also what arend highlights within the whole totalitarian movements is not a focus upon specifics that is different issues like all those different concepts have but rather one central issue which is that of an ideological concern as well as a relation into history which is exactly how man sees the situation. German cultural values are concerned with an organization of the world and then that touches upon those previous points as well that the nazi party and so forth argued all about the causes that are deep natural psychological and social over and above all the party issues and here you can see exactly the same points this whole certain organization of the world is going to be that big ideological outlook something that's going to try to be german as it says and those cultural values are going to be different from everything that's Western. And so then we have such a great example then of Thomas Mann. And that dissatisfaction of culture is an example that's going on within the time period. As well as we have as another example called the Manifesto of the 93. And this was a proclamation on the 4th of October 1914. So an example here much earlier than the Thomas Mann example, which is signed by prominent German scientists, scholars, and artists, and it's 93 of them, hence the Manifesto the 93. And why was this proclamation made in the first place by the prominent scientists, scholars and artists was made in order to try and counter the anti-German propaganda and to justify Germany's military actions, such as the rape of Belgium, as it's called, which was the massacre of Belgian civilians during the German invasion and occupation of Belgium how they try to justify all this is that they argue that german military action was necessary as a proponent as advancing higher culture against western values as it says in the very last lines of it have faith in us believe that we shall carry on this war to the end as a civilized nation to whom the legacy of a goa a beethoven and a khan is just as sacred as its own hearths and homes And so here again, within the Manifesto of the 93, just like we have within the Thomas Mann example, this whole dissatisfaction with Western culture and Western ideas as a whole, and rather trying to advance a specifically German idea and saying that the German idea is in fact that of a higher culture and that reference back into its own history as well of Goethe, Beethoven, Kant, as well as we had the relation into philosophy as well from Thomas Mann of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. So we have all this going on within the time period, as she says, when you have all that dissatisfaction for the standards of society by the elite as well as the intellectuals at the time period now we move on into the life in the trenches for our next bit so then iran argues that life in the trenches changed everything for people why did that happen because she says This laid the foundation for the establishment of a new elite who were not idealistic of their past but rather their experience was of bare destruction and the humiliation of the realization that there were only small cogs in the machine of slaughter. I think that is such a fantastic line that Arendt has. Their experience was of the bare destruction and humiliation of the realization there are only small cogs in the machine of slaughter. What a fantastic way to paint a picture for people to exactly what is war like, a machine of slaughter. Then, she also said, war symbolized death. The great equalizer, everybody dies regardless of their position. Everybody goes over the top, as they say. Everybody goes over the top of those trenches and advances forward. So war then transcended class lines and abandoned stupid class privileges and prejudices. So here we have an immense thing that's happened in terms of how people think of themselves and each other pre-World War One, we have this whole class society, we have this whole structure within monarchs and royalty, nobility, the clergy, everybody else. Suddenly, when the nobility and so forth, and those who are considered to be higher up in society, are then brought into a relationship with everybody else in the trenches, then... It's that whole realization of their own position as well as that of everybody else, is everybody's exactly the same boat, is a nice way to put it. Everybody is dying together, regardless of what their position is, as well as that whole humiliation of those people who are in the nobilities and so forth, that they themselves are only a small cog in the machine. And it's all going on to that point of transcending all those class lines that were there before, getting rid of any sort of privileges and prejudices, as she says. And we have such a fantastic example for Life in the Trenches, and this is from the BBC Bite Size website. And as it says here, on the Western Front, the war was fought by soldiers in trenches. Trenches were long, narrow ditches dug into the ground where soldiers lived. They were very muddy, uncomfortable, and the toilets overflowed. These conditions caused some soldiers to develop medical problems, such as trench foot. There were many lines of German trenches on one side and many lines of Allied trenches on the other In the middle was no man's land, which soldiers crossed to attack the other side. And it also has, from this BBC bite-sized website, a fantastic whole picture of what a typical day in the trenches were like for people. So let's just go through what exactly a typical day in the life would be like. 5am, stand to, short for stand to arms, meaning to be on high alert for enemy attack half an hour before daylight five thirty a.m rum ration 6 a.m stand down half an hour after daylight 7 a.m breakfast usually consisting of bacon and tea after 8 a.m clean selves and weapons tidy trench noon have dinner after dinner, sleep and downtime, 5pm, tea, 6pm, stand to half an hour before dusk, 6.30pm, stand down half an hour after dusk, 6.30pm onwards, work all night with some time for rest, patrols, digging trenches, putting up barbed wire, getting stores soldiers only got to sleep in the afternoon during daylight and at night for an hour at a time during rest time they wrote letters and played card games so i think that's an incredibly fantastic picture of exactly what life was like as it says there as a whole is all really standing to getting ready for attention as it says for a large part of it all getting ready for an attack and in the meantime in the midst of all that trying to get something to eat trying to clean yourself as well as the weapons and tidying up the area that you're in as well at the same time and trying to fit sleep into all that so we have then two things that we've covered so far then we've had life pre-world war one the whole structure of society focused upon the monarchs, nobility, clergy, everybody else. We have World War I in the trenches. Suddenly, the class divides and so forth just pushed aside. Why is that? Because war transcended that as an idea for everybody. Then we go into post-World War I. And how did this then affect everybody and how they thought of their selves and self-identity? And so one of the main things as a whole for Europe then is that you have that whole dissolution of monarchs and you have in place of that trying to establish forms of government and trying to have it all settle back down again. So you have people in position of trying to sort out all the political matters for everybody and of course great example that we covered in the last episode as well as all that upheaval within Russia and the Bolsheviks and so forth and trying to establish a government in Russia post the whole abdication of Tsar Nicholas II then we go into the whole idea of activism then that arantz says why is this the case that we have this whole sense of activism because it's everybody getting politically involved everybody now then getting into the whole ideas of government and so forth because of all this upheaval and then she says activism gave new answers to the questions of self-identity people will now identify by their actions and not by their class or place in society And no longer by their position. And one of the examples that she gives is the first flight that was to be successful in crossing the Atlantic. And that was achieved by John Alcock and Arthur Whitten Brown, who flew across the Atlantic. It says here on history.com, with the help of a sextant, whiskey and coffee in 1919 eight years before Charles Lindbergh's flight and then we also have an example of philosophy with Sartre really coming out here and Arendt only gives just the briefest quote of Sartre which is you are your life and nothing more which is from his play no exit from 1944 and what exactly is the importance of satra in the midst of all this is because satra's whole philosophy let's say in a nutshell for this point for this purpose is because he argues that people have the freedom of choice to live their life how they like and therefore you can see with the crumbling of the monarchical system and the class system that would be immensely influential as well as exciting to read to people during that whole time period because suddenly you're not determined by your place in society your class like you were before but now you can be solely determined through your actions just like Flying across that Atlantic, it's open suddenly for people to do great actions, for everybody, and have that freedom to do great things. And as she says there, people wanted to escape those traditional roles that society had been imposed upon them. And such a great example that comes to mind for this is, of course, the whole idea of the housewife. And then the whole suffragette movement within the UK, for instance, of working against this whole image that a woman's place was at home and for not at work whatsoever, as well as fighting against the whole idea about women have got no right to vote and women's vote and all that as well at the same time, as she says for a rant rounding off there. The point is to do something unpredictable and undetermined by everybody else. So, as we said, you're determined by action and no longer by your place in society or your class. Post-World War I leaders, then, how does everybody have a fascination with Hitler and Stalin? And Arant gives us an insight into this as she says... The fascination with Hitler and Stalin was because they were out with the class, national system, and respectable European society before it broke down. So here's an interesting thing. Anything that's considered to be different. Or on the fringes of society, as you would say. Something that didn't adhere to how things were in the past. Suddenly is exciting for people. Suddenly is like, oh my god, respectable society, pushed this aside, I need to have an interest in this. And one example she gives actually of what happened in terms of reading is that... People were precisely drawn to things that what was considered to be horrible read material pushed aside by respectable society. Suddenly people wanted to take an interest in it. And one of those people is Marquis de Sade. And if anybody looks up Marquis de Sade, you'll see that he is one of those writers in which he talks a lot about incredibly offensive topics to a lot of people and he looks a lot at sexuality sex as well as his name as well is the namesake for sadism so you could see why respectable society would have absolutely nothing to do with a man who's interested in sadism but the example there is just simply to know how people were interested in how disrespectable society pushed things aside and interested in all those fringes and this is where we go into that fascination with Hitler and Stalin because they weren't within the traditional structure as they said so she says about Hitler in his early career of course he pursued his dream of being an artist but he was rejected by Vienna's Academy of Fine Arts and after his mother died in 1908, he moved to Vienna and sold paintings of the scenery and monuments. And then for Stalin, we have him in 1899, briefly a clerk in Tiflis Observatory, or rather, I should say, Tbilisi, which is the capital of Georgia. And this was his only paid employment outside of politics, and has no record of ever having done manual labor. Then in 1900, he joined the political underground and so here you have for hitler on the one hand rejected by respectable society so that is rejected by vienna's academy of fine arts and then as well for stalin doesn't have any relation into doing any manual labor whatsoever and then only just briefly having that job as a clerk in the observatory before then joining the political underground so again two people who are very much out with the norms of regular society one being part of the political underground the other just simply selling his paintings of the monuments and scenery And then building upon this whole fascination with the mass leaders for Hitler and Stalin, Hitler also appealed to this front generation of World War I. She always calls this whole set of people in the trenches as this front generation. And this was to focus upon their yearning for anonymity and to just be a number and a cog And this didn't focus upon nationalism, but rather upon an indistinct comradeship because World War I extinguished all nationalist feelings in Europe. And the example that came to mind thinking about this is the Nazi propaganda in Nazi-occupied France focused upon comradeship and how there was no differences between French and German culture. Here we can say the way that Hitler in this example that she uses appealed to people wasn't through the whole idea of nationalism but rather this whole feeling of that indistinct comradeship so it played upon all those feeling of people within the trenches that everybody was just a cog everybody was just ultimately a number whatever their enlisted number in the army was and so on everybody all died together having this whole sense of indistinct comradeship and going back into that whole point about nazi occupation of france isn't it incredible that you could say well here you have two incredibly different cultures from each other you have french culture and you have german culture and yet how can you argue they're somehow the same through that whole argument of indistinct comradeship everybody goes through exactly the same suffering war transcends all that idea of class and so forth as we said before and that's the way in which you can see the nazi propaganda is so good at being appealing to this front generation of people and arendt says as well what about the nationalist side and these people that are on the right wing, extremely conservative. She says that their propaganda actually was used for violence instead of promoting national pride. So then we also have an interesting thing that Arendt picks up on is not only do we have their fascination with the leaders because they're out with the norms of society not only do we have them interested in the nazi propaganda because it's appealing to this whole idea of indistinct comradeship then we also have her saying well people are appealed to their terrorist acts why because it functions differently from how it worked in revolutionary societies as she says so a great example of this is of course to use France is where you have as she says previously you eliminated certain outstanding people because of politics or position and was a symbol of oppression. So if we go into the French Revolution and go straight to the horrific event of the terror you can see exactly what Orwell's trying to say here. You immediately pick out a specific person as a threat this is oppressing our revolutionary ideas this person needs the guillotine and he's gone away and gone straight to the guillotine but on the other hand you have then this development of terrorism and arendt says that terrorism is a philosophy to express frustration resentment and blind hatred and this is all tied into people are happy for self-sacrifice if they succeeded in forcing recognition of one's own life so again we have this built into this whole focus away from class and position into this whole focus upon action now and self-sacrifices even to that extreme extent saw as something that's completely fine to do, why? Because it's an action that will ultimately make people recognize that person's life. As well as of course you can just build upon those whole points as it says philosophy to express frustration, resentment, and blind hatred. There is nothing good as for a saying here that you have with terrorist acts at all and you can just go into terrorist groups as a whole all of them have the ideological things that's built into those points of frustration resentment and blind hatred there's always a thing to be held up and for that thing to be resented and hated and so we have then continuing on as we go the fascination with the leaders the way in which the leaders gained this new front generation of people through the propaganda through that indistinct comradeship then we had the fascination with terrorist acts because it functioned in a different way from how governments used to do things in revolutionary society as she says then we go into history and our last point as well so then for history post World War 1 Arendt says is that there's a rejection of the official historiography as it's considered a forgery. Why did people consider their own history to be a forgery is because it didn't consider the oppressed and the working class. In other words, everything was written by the rich aristocracy in missing the history of the poor. Arendt, then argues this explains people's fascination with marx in marx's philosophy marx attempted to rewrite history in terms of the class struggle which is the concepts of the proletariat and the bourgeois so the working class versus the middle and upper class and she says even if people who did not agree with Marx were fascinated by it, as it included a whole set of people that had been omitted from official histories and that they played an important role in prosperity. So we have this whole focus then upon history as something that's incorrect. You've missed out precisely the importance of this working class and the poor, All that is done previously, you can argue, in their eyes would be focusing upon and written by the rich aristocracy. Who exactly is the one that all the history will be focusing on? Are those rich aristocrats? Specifically, genius individuals, let's say, who do fantastic things within science, let's say Newton and so forth. All people within the same sphere of respectable society as a rent would say but what about those people that's out with what's considered to be respectable society and that's the point in which he says well now since everybody's had a whole sense of class blown completely open in which no longer do they think of themselves in a privileged position anymore everybody's the same because of all that suffering everybody's went through in the trenches together, then we have to include all these people too. And you can see all that fascination, as she says, with the importance of Marx, because Marx is, as she says, someone who takes into account precisely the working class. And the whole importance, as she says there as well, the whole importance of prosperity is not just upon the fantastic deeds done by specific people but rather upholding the economy and so forth is all that labor force of all the working class people and so forth so on the other side of looking at history like this if you consider history then to be a forgery she said this aversion by the elite to the official historiography, leave history to be created and made up by crackpots and through complete falsehood. So here we then have Stalin and Hitler come in, and as she says, their whole act of lying in and of itself is not spectacular, what she says. What's spectacular is the way that they were able to convince the masses To back up their lies and agree with them. And then we have of course following all that. The blurring the lines between truth and lie. Fiction and non-fiction. So we've covered quite a lot in this episode so far. So what can we say rounding off after everything? Pre-World War I Europe was in a monarchical system. Except from France. Everyone lived according to their position in society. You only managed to escape your situation for the average person either through blind luck or marriage. Post World War I Europe, you have the complete dissolving of the monarchical system and the establishment, and trying to have the establishment of governments. People greatly affected by life in the trenches. And this whole shared feeling of everyone just being a cog in the murder machine of war. Such a great concept. There's that great rejection of how things are done in the past. People are now determined according to their actions and not position in society. People were fascinated by those who are out with the traditional system like Hitler and Stalin. They were fascinated by terrorist acts as it privileged and brought fame to individuals who committed sacrifices in their actions. They were fascinated in reading things that were rejected by respectable society before, like Marquis de Sade, and there was that rejection of official historiography or history because it didn't include the poor. So I think that nicely manages to cover where we've got up to which is only halfway through this section believe it or not all this information is just through one half of the section of the temporary alliance between the elite and the mob and of course the answer to that is what is that alliance is going into the masses and here we've built upon this whole origin of the concept of the masses all from the importance of life in the trenches in World War I. In the next episode, then, we'll be continuing on working our way through this section, working our way through Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. Feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy ko fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Drop me an email at my address dissecting philosophy at gmail.com and lastly I could be found on Twitter at I am a Rubber Man. Many thanks for listening and i hope you'll join me next time.